Well, thank the Lord, we are jumping back into the book of Hebrews this morning, and I want to begin with a question. Do you think there will ever be a time when scientists and engineers can, can build an android that is so lifelike that you could walk up to it and have a conversation and think that it was a real human being? Anybody think that that, that day is ever coming, when an android would actually fool you? No way. There is no way. It will never happen. I bet all my life savings on it. I just don't think it's possible. I think human beings are too unique, too distinct, and as fascinating as technology and robots have become, I just don't think it's possible. I think, I think the skin, the eyes, the hair, I don't think they can be replicated. Our bodies and our five senses are so unique and so profound the ability that we have to experience the world around us, right? There's, there's no replicating an actual human-to-human -human contact, right? I mean, Zoom has taught us that over the last three years, right? It was supposed to be so profound. And how many of us have been burned out on Zoom and realized it's not the same? It's not the same as being face-to-face -face with somebody, right? Seeing their expressions, having, having that eye contact, knowing their, their physical connection, Right? Experiencing things in the flesh, being face-to-face -face is part of what makes us human. And I, for one, don't think a robot will ever be able to accomplish that. But it's not just our physical bodies that make us distinct and profound as humans. Our hearts, our emotions, our intellect, our communication, our feelings are all unique and magnificent the way that human beings have been designed by God. Right? When you meet another human, you know it's a human. There's an instant connection that's different than any other experience on, on earth, right? And apparently, like, chimpanzees are super intelligent. Apparently, they've taught them sign language. There might be a day where they teach a chimpanzee how to speak English. But guess what? Talking to a chimp is never going to be the same as talking to a man or woman in the flesh before you. There's something that's distinct and unique about who we are as human beings. We share a common bond, our physical bodies. Right? Our emotions, our shared experience, all, all humans have a, a shared beginning. Right, We were all created by God, created by God and designed to reflect Him, different than any other aspect of creation. His image in the flesh, that's what the Scripture teaches us. We reflect God, we're designed to reflect Him, to be His image in the flesh here on earth. And, and all of this, I set all of this up because that's what makes it so profound that our Savior Jesus became a human being. He became a human being. God, the eternal Son of God, became human. He took on flesh. The Bible says that he actually lived a real flesh and blood, exi flesh and blood existence. He was truly human, living on earth. He had all the same five senses that you have. He had the same shared human experience that you and I have and that every human being has had. There's something that's universal about the human experience. In fact, Jesus still is a human. Hey, if I'm doing something that's making that happen, let me know, and I'd be happy to stop it. Um, <laughs> In fact, the scriptures tell us that Jesus still is a human. While we believe that he is exalted and, and still living up in heaven, 
We believe that he is, he is still living as a human, the God-man. He's still fully God and fully human. And one day he will return in a physical body and make all things new. And our Savior Jesus is the Savior in the flesh. That's our big picture idea this morning. That's what we're going to read about in Hebrews chapter 2. That our Savior is a Savior who came, who is, who was in the flesh. And so turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 10 this morning. If you're using one of those blue hardback Bibles, it's page 1002, or you can open up one of your little green scripture journals or pull it up on your phone. Man, I would love for you to follow along with us. So we started this letter a couple weeks ago. Remember, Hebrews is written to remind the readers that Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior to anything that would pull them away from Christ, anything in the, in the Old Covenant, anything in the world. And the first chapter, the author has gone to great lengths to explain that Jesus, the Son of God, is exalted. He's reigning in glory. He is far superior to even the angels in heaven, right? And these Hebrews have been confused, and they have some misunderstanding about the relationship between God and humans and angels. But he's saying, no, no, Jesus, our Savior, is far better than angels. And last week, we read this warning, and, and the Word of God warned us, don't drift away. Don't drift away from this great reality of who Christ is and what he's done. He has accomplished our salvation and he is now seated on the throne of grace in victory. And we are called to draw near, to draw near to the throne of grace. And we've read this theme verse over and over, Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In time of need, friends, draw near to the throne of grace. There you will find, in the presence of Jesus, you will find mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. But if we're following the flow of thought in the book of Hebrews, there's this nagging question, something that I, I think has confused the Hebrew audience who's receiving the letter. And the question is this, if Jesus is so glorious, if he's so far superior than the angels, if he's seated in heaven in glory, then why did he become a human? Why did our Savior take on human form and become a man in the flesh? And that's what we're going to address and answer this morning in Hebrews 2, 10 to 18. Why did Jesus become flesh and blood? Why did he become a man? Why is he our Savior in the flesh? So I'm going to pray, and then I'd love for you to read along with me in Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 10. Lord God, I just ask now that you would settle our hearts, that you would turn our minds and our hearts and our eyes to you, that as we read your word, as we unpack, that your spirit would speak to us, that he would stir in us and call us to truth, call us to faith, call us to obedience. Lord, we need your help. We need your help as humans, as spouses, as parents, but we need your help right now, even as children of God, to, to be transformed by your word. And so pierce our hearts, speak to us, give us hope, give us faith. Pray that we would have a clear picture of our Savior this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. 
In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. Amen. Verse 10 says that the end goal of our salvation, listen to this, the plan of God the Father was to bring many sons to glory. See, the purpose of your salvation is not just that your sins would be forgiven. It's not just that you would have a new birth into some kind of basic, baseline life. Salvation means an eternal, abundant, perfect, complete, joy-filled, glorified life in the presence of God. It means that as God's children, we will be like him. We will share in his glory. We, the scriptures say, will rule alongside God in his kingdom. We'll bring many sons to glory, many sons into the presence and the glorious existence of God. Now, now ladies, I'm sure that you picked up on, if you're reading from the English Standard Version translation, it says many sons to glory, Right? Now, I actually believe that this is the best translation of the Greek word, and there's a a specific theological reason why it says sons to glory. Because chapter 1 has gone through great length to show that Jesus is who? To show that Jesus is the Son of God. That's been his messianic title that Hebrews has introduced to us. We, you and I, are adopted into God's family through faith in God's Son. And that means that we belong to God the Father because we are united with God the Son. We come to God the Father in Christ. We we are in Christ. That's our entrance into the kingdom. And so all of us, both men and women, are sons of God because we are adopted in Christ through the Son of God. Do you see that? Our identity is in Him. See, all of the love, all of the favor that the Son has, all of the status and the inheritance that the Son has, all of that, that, that belongs to Jesus now belongs to us as sons of God. And one day we will be glorified in Jesus, with Jesus, just as he is in glory now. I will also add, ladies, sisters, that the New Testament is filled with other references affirming your identity as women of God, as daughters in the kingdom, but there's a specific theological understanding here that in Christ we have our identity in Him. Now keep in mind, by the way, that that men also share in the corporate identity of God's people as the bride of Christ, right? So we, we have to submit a little bit there as well. So we are sons of God, and in another sense we are sons and daughters of God, adopted as His children. Verse 10 will go on to say that since it's this goal, since the goal is to bring many sons to glory, it was fitting, it was fully appropriate, verse 10 says, that that God should make the founder of our salvation perfect. How? How does he make him perfect? Through suffering. This title, founder, can also be translated source or author. Jesus is the author, the source, the founder of your salvation. Why? Because he won for us freedom. 
He won for us and paved the way into life with God. And so as the author of our salvation, Jesus had to be made perfect. He had to be perfected through suffering. And we know, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, Jesus suffered. He suffered on earth in his life and surely in his death. And this suffering, listen, it perfected Jesus. Now don't get the impression that the Son of God somehow wasn't morally perfect before he suffered on earth. It's not talking here in verse 10 about his, about his purity, but it's talking about his purpose. He was perfected in his purpose. See, the, the original Greek word, the root here, means for something to reach completion, to be perfect in fulfilling its intended goal. And so as God, Jesus has always been morally pure, always been morally perfect. But in his suffering on earth, he was tried and he was tested as a human And his human experience grew, and as his experience grew, as he matured as a man, through suffering, he learned endurance. Through suffering, his obedience was perfected. Hebrews will make a similar point in chapter 5. Check out this verse. We have Hebrews 5 on the screen. I thought we had it. It says this. There we go. Nope. Hebrews 5. All right. Well, you just have to listen. Hebrews 5 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You see that? He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. See, listen to this. Without the suffering and the hardship that Jesus experienced in this fallen world, without facing every temptation, every form of abandonment and persecution, without carrying the sin of his people and suffering the just punishment of God, listen, Jesus could not have been our Savior. He had to come in flesh. He had to suffer so that he could save us. Because by the plan of God, the Father used the suffering of Jesus' life on earth, the suffering of the cross, to complete and perfect him as the author of our salvation. And so verse 11 will go on to say that this Jesus who sanctified us and those who are being sanctified all have one source. Now, in the original language, the verse is a little more vague. It literally just means that Jesus and his people are all of one. That if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you belong to him, that you are are of one with Jesus. That means they're united with him, that you have a shared common experience with him. That just as he calls God Father, we too call God Father. And so Jesus, as a fellow human being, sanctifies his people, making us holy. That that word sanctify means to, to make something holy, means to set it apart as pure as clean, set apart for the purposes of God. This is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Verse 11 says, Jesus calls us brothers. Now this word actually does and can mean brothers and sister. It's the the Greek word for where we get our word Philadelphia, Adelphos, city of brotherly love, love. And that word means either brother or sister. It's like sibling, I think is a good translation. He is not ashamed to call us his siblings because we are made complete in him. All the brothers and sisters are sanctified and made complete in Christ. Now sometimes we use this word sanctification 
We use that to refer to the process. We have a lifelong process of being made pure and being made holy. But here it's talking about our definitive sanctification, that the moment you place faith in Christ, the moment the Spirit enters your heart and you are born again, you are declared clean and pure and holy before God. We have been sanctified, the verse says, before God. And so, since we are now clean in Christ, He can proudly, without shame, look at you and me and say, you're my brother. You're my sister. And i got to tell you how profound that is. I don't know about you, but for me, it's, it's mind-blowing. Because I'm incomplete. And I struggle. And I'm still sinful. And I'm still being refined. And many aspects of my life still look like a complete mess. And Jesus looks at me and he says, you're my brother. And I'm not ashamed. And I'll stand up in front of the room full of the most prominent people on earth. I'll stand before the angels. I'll stand before my God in heaven. And Jesus will look at me and say, Tim is my brother and I'm not ashamed of him. He proudly calls me his brother because we both call God Father, because he knows that I belong to the Lord, because I have been declared. I am clean. I'm sanctified before the Father. I'm holy before God. Verses 12 and 13 goes on, as we know the author of Hebrews is prone to do, he's going to say, okay, now I'm going to back up all of that with some Old Testament scriptures, right? And we've seen that in the first chapter and a half, that he's going to rely upon the Old Testament to show that we are siblings of the Savior. And so he'll quote there from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 pictures God's anointed one facing suffering and attack, then being rescued and declaring his thanks to God, his brother's. And so he quotes there, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. He then quotes from Isaiah 8. And he sees this passage in Isaiah as, as being fulfilled in a reference to Jesus' trust in the Father and his care for God's children. 12 and 13, back up his point that Jesus calls us his siblings. See, because Jesus is our Savior in the flesh, he can look at you and say, you're my brother, you're my sister. And there's a connection there. There's a bond there. We are siblings of Christ, the one who's seated on high. And siblings have a special connection, don't they? Raise your hand if you have ever chased a bear. Not have been chased by a bear, but raise your hand if you've ever chased a bear. Okay, my hand is up. Yes? Did you? All right. We'll have to share stories after church today. Now, I have an older sister and a younger brother. If they were here with me, both of their hands would go up as well. Because my sister in college got a job in Estes Park, Colorado at the YMCA camp there. And my family, my parents and my younger brother and I flew out there and spent a week and a half in Estes Park seeing my sister and touring the beautiful Estes Park. And there was one afternoon where we were sitting in a restaurant in a wooded area in Estes Park. And out of the window, my sister sees a bear. And she kind of yelps, and she grabs her camera sitting on the table. This was back in the day when you had to have like an actual camera, right? We didn't have like a device in your pot. So she grabs her camera, and she runs out of the restaurant. Now, my brother and I, not knowing what's about to happen, but whether it's going to be exciting or dangerous, we want to be with her. So we run out after my sister. The three of us run out the front door of the restaurant. We round the corner of the restaurant to the back where the window had been. And what do we stumble upon but a... But a a black bear eating lunch out of the dumpster, right? Now, we startled him, okay? 
Now, you have to understand, in Estes Park, bear, they're kind of more like raccoon, okay? So we startled this, this big uh, black bear, and he realizes he can no longer eat lunch in peace, and so he hops down, and he begins to waddle off into the woods up the hill behind this restaurant. Now, my sister hadn't got, yet gotten a picture, right? She went out there to get a picture of this bear. She hadn't yet gotten a picture, and so what does she do? She starts following the bear up into the woods. Now, I would like to think that I called out to her, Mel, that's a stupid idea. Don't, don't chase this bear. But I don't know if I did that or not. But my brother and I, and, and I now the three of us, are literally running after this bear as he's, as he's now halfway up the hill in front of us. About 30 yards up, he stops between two big pine trees. He turns around. He rears up on his hind legs, standing up in front of us as if to say, go ahead, get your picture. And if you don't believe me, my sister has the picture to prove it. Now, here's the thing. 50 years from now, if I'm still alive, my brother and sister and I, all we have to do is say, you remember that bear? And, and, and we know. We have this shared experience, this shared memory, this shared connection of doing something that I guess potentially could have been really, really stupid. And I'm glad the bear didn't eat us. But we have this special bond, this shared experience. I mean, we, we have hundreds of shared experiences. We have the same parents, the same upbringing, this special, unique bond as siblings. Now, I realize that, that many sibling relationships have been broken by tragedy or conflict, but healthy brothers and sisters, whether they're 10 or 60, healthy brothers and sisters share not only the same parents, not only the same name, but a special and a close connection. And listen, when Jesus looks at you, that's how he sees you. He says, you're my brother. And we have the same father, and we have the same name, and we have the same shared experience. And Jesus looks at you with that close sibling familial connection. He too is human. He too knows the highs and lows of life in the flesh. He too calls God Father. He has been through everything that you've been through. He can identify with all of your memories. He can identify with all of your pain, all of your joy. He knows what it's like to have the love and acceptance of God the Father. In fact, we only know it because we sh He has shared it with Him. He has shared it with us. He knows what it's like to have the love and acceptance of Father. And He knows what it's like to have the heartbreak and abandonment of others on earth. See, Jesus is our Savior in the flesh, and through faith in Him, you are adopted into God's family. He now looks at you and calls you by name, calls you His brother or sister. And that means that today, this morning, not only is Jesus your victorious King, not only is He a merciful high priest, but you can look and call Him brother. And He is better than any older brother here on earth. And as magnificent of a job as I'm sure that those three Von Stein boys will do in protecting their baby sister, Jesus is your big brother who literally laid down his life for you. He knows you. He watches over you. He knows your needs. He loves you. And, and the call today is to draw near. Draw near to your big brother Jesus and find help. Find help in whatever time of need you face today and tomorrow and whatever day may come. Now listen, not only does our Savior coming in the flesh mean that he calls you sibling, but it also means that he delivers us from death. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, look, since the children of God, who Jesus was charged to save, since they were human, since, since you and I are made of flesh and blood, Jesus shared with us in the experience of flesh and blood and took on human form. 
Check this out. The Son of God existed for all of eternity. He was fully God. But the Bible says that he emptied himself of his exalted position in the Trinity. He was born as a human while still remaining fully God, both a divine nature and a human nature residing in one person. The book of Philippians says it like this. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Now, now why would Jesus do that? There is a bizarre, I think a bizarre, and a fascinating reason why Jesus would empty himself and come down to earth and take on human form. He was born as a human so that he could die. What? That's why he came. He became a human so that he could die. See, listen to this. We needed salvation, but there was a dilemma to the fact that you and I had broken our relationship with God, the fact that you and I were lost, that we had turned from God, that we were serving ourselves, we were walking in disobedience, saying to God, I'm living on my own, I don't need you, I don't want you. We were in active rebellion, God wanted to save us, but there was a dilemma, and here's the dilemma. We were so lost, and we were so desperate, That only God, only an all-powerful God could save us. Only a God who is infinite, who is all-powerful, would be able to save us from the great overwhelming threat of sin and death and darkness and brokenness. It had to be God that would save us. But we also needed someone who could live an obedient life for us and stand as our representative before God as a fellow human. Only a human being could live life on earth and obey God and stand before God and say, I now represent these people. It had to be a human to save us. But the problem is that no mere human could bear the weight of all the sin of all of God's people. No mere human could endure eternal punishment that sin requires. Only an infinite being could do that. But since the punishment for sin is death, a Savior that could bear that eternal weight and die in our place to appease justice, a Savior had to be able to die. Had to be able to die in our place. But but the problem is God can't die. Only humans, only created humans can die. And so do you see the Savior must be God to save us, but the Savior also must be human to save us. And what does God do with this dilemma? He says, okay, God and man. Two natures, one person in our Savior, Jesus, fully God and fully human. And so again, verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now listen, God is is sovereign. He holds the power of life and death for every single one of us. But the fallen angel that we call the devil, who stands opposed to God, has been allotted limited power in this world. And part of his power is is over death itself. And so the devil has the power to tell lies that lead us into death. He has the power to tempt us into sin, which results in death. He has the power to, to bring condemnation 
for our guilt, to make us think that, that, that we're worthy of death and we deserve death. He holds death over our head, causing us to live in constant fear of death. But listen, when Jesus died on the cross in our place, he swallowed death and he destroyed the devil, the one who holds the power of death. And in his dying on the cross and rising from the dead, he took away the power of death. 1 John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Meditating on, on what Jesus did on the cross and the definitive atonement that he made for us. John Owen, who was a 17th century English theologian, he wrote this book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And I've always loved that title. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Jesus died and now death itself has been put to death. The one who holds the power of death has been dethroned. Verse 15 says that, that those who don't know Christ, who don't know that freedom, live their whole lives in fear of death. It says enslaved to the fear of death. And yet Jesus has delivered us from that fear. See, apart from the work of Christ, most people live in constant fear of death. And they suppress it and they overcome it. And it may not be outward, but the fear of dying is the greatest fear, and it's the fear, I believe, from which every other fear is ultimately derived. And so people, some people will, will try to numb that fear with drugs or with alcohol or with, a, with addiction, abuse. Some people try to cheat that fear and cheat death, and they try to build a false immorality and they say, well, well if I'm going to die someday, I have to try and immorality through success or through prominence or through fame. And then, I, then I'll live forever. I can somehow cheat death. Other people simply embrace their death and say, afraid of death? I'm not afraid of, of death. And they just live a wild, reckless life seeking to overcome and in some ways just embrace the reality that they know they can't get away. But, but verse 15 says that in Christ, we're no longer enslaved to this. We no longer have to, to fear our own death. Jesus has conquered death. Now look, every single one of us is still going to die. We're still going to cross from this life into the life to come. But our future is a future of eternal life with God. Not an eternal death apart from God, but eternal life with God. And so listen, Christian, you, you should not, please do not think this passage gives you the liberty to have a death wish. We, we do not wish for death. We do not live dangerous, reckless lives, but we also are not afraid of our own death because Jesus came for us. He took on our flesh. He delivered us. Who did Jesus come to help? Verse 16 says, look, he came to help men and women. He didn't come to help angels. He came to help you and I. Now we've seen in the book of Hebrews that the audience has some clear misunderstandings, right, about the place of angels. And so he reiterates here again in verse 16, look, Jesus came for you, for me, for humans, not for angelic beings. He doesn't reach down and help them. No, he helps the offspring of Abraham. That means the physical descendants of Abraham, but, but also those that are children of Abraham through faith in Christ. See, Jesus as our Savior in the flesh means he has delivered us from death. And so the call, the reminder, the question today is, do you trust him? Do you trust him as Savior? Are you just going to live under that, that, that plaguing dark reality of death, or will you trust Christ, your Savior? Not just for heaven, not just for life eternal someday, but right here and now. Will you trust Christ to deliver you, to fill you, to draw you into life? Has he released you? Has he released you from fear? 
I, I said earlier, I think, I think that every fear is ultimately a derivative of the fear of death. What fear is it that you are wrestling with? What anxiety, what burdens, what weighs you down? Will you come to Christ? Will you lay those things before you and to say, God, I believe that you've destroyed the power of death. Free me from fear that I could be a man or a woman that lives in peace and in strength. See, Jesus is the founder of your salvation. He's your older brother. He's the one who kneeled down to come down to be like you, to be with you, and to deliver you from the experience of death, both now and eternal. He's our Savior in the flesh. He calls you his sibling. He delivers you from death. But look at verses 17 and 18. Before we close, let's look for a minute at how he helps us in temptation. Verse 17 says, In order to help us in our sin, in order to deliver us from death and sanctify us to be holy, Jesus had to be made like us, to be made like his siblings in every way. Now that's a very strong statement. Jesus, in coming to earth as a human, became like us in every way. He shared all of our experiences. Now, of course, those of you that, like me, are a little cantankerous, you're like, wait a minute. I've been through a lot that Jesus never went through, Right? Like, he didn't have technology, he didn't have cell phones, he didn't have, even have flushable toilets. What do you mean he shared in my experience in every way? He wasn't married, never had to pay a mortgage, didn't have to deal with traffic. Yeah, those things are true. Those, those are all specific circumstances. But his experiences in living life on earth was like ours. Listen to this. Everything that you have been through, no matter how specific... No matter how high or how low, everything that you have been through and experienced, Jesus can identify with. He has experienced every human emotion. He's experienced deep happiness and deep sadness, surprise and disappointment, excitement and despair and relief and frustration, every triumph and every pain that you've been through. He knows what good days are like and what bad days are like. He's had, his, he's had his expectations met, and he's had expectations dashed. He knows the love of other humans, but he also knows when other humans turn their back on you and hate you. And he's been tempted in every way that you have been tempted. Jesus, while on earth, was tempted into idolatry, and greed, and materialism, to look to the things of the world for comfort. He was tempted, yes, tempted by lust. He was tempted into anger, tempted into jealousy. There's nothing that you could go through in this life on earth and accurately say, Jesus doesn't know what it's like. He knows what it's like. That moment when you lie awake at night and think, if only my husband really understood. If only my parents really knew. If only my friends really could identify. Listen, Jesus knows. Because he's been there. He walked through it. He knows your heart. He knows your experience. Verse 17 says that he shared our universal human experience so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest of God. See, the priests in, in Old Testament Israel were ones that offered animal sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. They, they were merely human mediators between God and man. But the sins of the people that were transferred onto an animal in the Old Covenant were sacrificed in place of the people. Jesus now stands as a high priest who puts the sin on himself, who puts our wrongs on himself, who sacrifices himself as our great high priest. It says that he would be the propitiation for our sins. Some translate that as atonement. 
He, he makes amends. He compensates for the wrongs done. This word propitiation is, is a very specific word. It means that he not only removes the guilt and the wrong that we have done, but he does so by, by satisfying the just anger, the just wrath of God. He, he pacifies God, who rightly, understandably, has been wronged and has some righteous anger. Jesus pacifies that anger. That's what he did when he stood between us and God as a mediator. And so listen, listen, listen to verse 18. Because he faced every temptation imaginable, everything that you and I have faced, because he has suffered through temptation without giving in, guess what? Now that means he can help us. When we are tempted, he is faithful. When we are tempted, he is merciful. He comes to our aid. And I think about my own temptations in life. Where it's, it's being tempted to just be lazy and be apathetic. And there are mornings where I just don't want to get up. And I, and I work other days than Sunday, and it's, it's actually quite hard work. It's emotionally draining work. And there are days I'd rather just be apathetic. There are times when my children, God bless them, don't listen, walk away, are snide, and I want to lash out in anger. I want to be demeaning. I want to say, don't you realize that I'm your father, right? When I see other things that people are experiencing or things that people are getting to do and that jealousy might stir up in me. Listen, every temptation I face, the Bible says Jesus can help me when tempted. How does he help us? How does he help you when you're tempted? I, I think at least three ways. First of all, he sympathizes with us. Jesus knows what it's like. And you, I know what it's like. You're in that moment and you think, you think nobody knows how hard it is. Nobody else has been through what I've been through. Jesus knows. And he sympathizes. Just as it says here in this passage, again, it'll be reiterated in chapter 4, 15. It'll say this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Listen, whatever temptation you are in the midst of, whatever temptation you face tomorrow at work or at school or in your marriage or in your home, you are not alone. Jesus knows, he sees, and he has deep, deep sympathy because he's been there. Secondly, he doesn't just sympathize with us, he intercedes for us. The book of Hebrews and other places in Scripture it, it, teach that Jesus is praying for you right now. Whatever you're facing, he prays for you. He pleads before God for you. He is for you. But thirdly, he doesn't just sympathize, he doesn't just pray. He leads us out. He shows us the way out. He shows us the way out of temptation. Have you heard the one about the guy who's walking through the forest and he, and, he, and he falls into this deep hole and he's like 15 feet down and he tries to climb up but he can't climb up. He's stuck in this hole and so he starts yelling. He starts crying out. He hears other people walking by and he's saying, hey, help me. I'm down here. I need help. And one guy walks over and peers down over the hole and says, nah, don't have time. And he walks away. He keeps crying out. Another guy walks over the hole and peers down and says, man, you're in a predicament. Hang on a second. Let me get a rope. And he comes back. All he can find is a branch. But the branch is only like 10 feet tall and, and the hole is 15 feet deep. And so he says, sorry, I don't have anything long enough. And he walks away. So the guy keeps yelling and he keeps shouting. And finally he sees this face peer over the edge of the hole. And it's his dear, dear, lifelong friend. And his friend looks down and says, oh my gosh, how did you get down there? He says, I'm stuck. Will you help me? Will you go get help? And his friend says, of course I'll help you. And his friend jumps down into the hole. The man is livid. What are you doing? Now we're both stuck down here. What are you doing? And the friend looks at him in the eye and says, man... I've been down here before. 
and I know the way out. You see what Jesus has done? He jumps down into the hole with you because he says, I've been here before. I've been in your place before. I know the way out. I know the way to be faithful. I know the way not to give in to sin and despair. I've been here, and I can lead you out. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that there is no temptation that has overtaken you, but such that is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. And so the call today is to cry out. Whatever temptation, whatever hardship, whatever brokenness you're facing, call out to Jesus. Call out to the Savior in the flesh and know that he will meet you in your time of need. He calls you brother. He calls you sister. He knows you. He has delivered you from death. He helps you in and through your temptation. He can lead you forward into God's presence. And so we're going to sing again. As the worship team comes, we're going to prepare our hearts. We're going to remind ourselves of this call of the book of Hebrews to with confidence, to with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I invite you to stand with me as we close, as we pray together. We're going to sing a couple of songs this morning. I encourage you just to, to put your Bibles down, to settle your hearts before the Lord. Don't, don't look at your phone. Don't look at your neighbor. Just take some time to, to, to worship, to be with the Lord Jesus. And so, God, we ask now that your presence would fill us, that as we sing these songs, they would not only be lifted up as, a, as an offering of worship, but, but you would pour down into our hearts to stir us, to fill us, to call us to faith. God, we are a desperate people who, who need help, need mercy, need grace. And so we worship you as our God. We worship you as our Savior. And we look to you now as older brother. Come help us in our time of need. Free us from the fear of death. Free us from despair. Free us from temptation. Come, Lord, and minister to us now as we worship, as we sing. Come, Holy Spirit.